KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. No, it's like a giant crisis. It's like a total coming-of-age crisis, which I think is really normal for young people because you don't, you know, you've been in your mother and father's household and you're not really making your own decisions. And I was making decisions like in my senior year of high school with no basis. You know, it's like that thing people say, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to major in? And you come up with an answer just because you know you have to give answers, but there's no basis for the answer, no experience. And so that first year of college for me was the collapse of all those fake answers and the challenge of trying to figure out, like, wait, what are the actual answers? Welcome to My First Day. I'm Andrew Bracken. Coming from a small remote island in Alaska, artist and filmmaker Cy Cookenbaker's San Diego life first started with just a visit right after high school. He won a scholarship that gave him a free round-trip plane ticket, so he decided to visit a friend from high school living in Imperial Beach. The visit would be somewhat of a precursor to what we all have to go through around this age, finding out who we are and choosing our own path rather than our parents. Here's Cy Cookenbaker's story of... My first day. We went straight to Imperial Beach. We went over the Coronado Bridge, which was, for me, really shocking because I came from such a tiny community. Even just the freeways were totally overwhelming to me. And Imperial Beach, that day, was a thing called Sandcastles Festival, which is the biggest event in that city per year. And it was bonkers. I mean, it's just like a madhouse of people. I just remember being so excited by... What for me was so exotic. It was like warm at the beach. There was just like every stereotype of California was happening right in front of my eyes, you know? And um, I remember that uh, I had a Bob Marley shirt on because I thought it would help me fit in. But it was like a Bob Marley shirt from like the mall in Minneapolis, you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> and I liked Bob Marley, but I didn't really understand what it meant here exactly. And so I got challenged like two or three times that day by people. Yeah, because I was like the, the whitest white kid you could ever see, you know? And then the culture shock was profound because you know, I was coming from a community with, you know, an island in Alaska that's just completely isolated. You know, we were, we're closer to Japan than we were to Seattle. Our high school had a hundred kids and no, you, you never drove faster than 40 miles an hour. There was no stoplights, you know. So coming here, I mean, it was just, like, mind-boggling. And one of the most distinct memories from the day is that we went to a taco shop next to a 7-Eleven. And the menu, I remember looking at the menu, and for me, it was, like, it was actually just straightforward language. I studied French in high school, and I was looking at it, like, I don't know any of these words. And I remember looking at the word quesadilla for a long time. And it just looked like a dinosaur name. I was like, that sounds like a dinosaur, like a quasadilla. It's like a T-Rex. I mean, what is this? And my friends were, you know, we were young people, and this is not an age where your friends have patience to help you come up to speed on things. And so I remember saying to my friend, like, I don't know what to get. And he said, just get a carne asada. And I was like, I, I, I can't repeat whatever you just said. It sounds so foreign. I can't say it. Like, what did you say? Like that. So he had to order for me. I remember feeling embarrassed. I remember that day I bought a tank top that said Flojos, and I bought a pair of Stussy shorts from the surf shop, and I bought like a Rasta wristband, and that was it. I was like, this is my spot. 
<laughs> I was in love. After his trip, Cy was soon off to college in South Dakota. He had gotten an Army ROTC scholarship to study civil engineering. He arrived to start school in the fall, sight unseen. And I showed up in South Dakota, and I knew the second I got there, actually. I mean, I got off the plane, I walked outside and looked around, and I was like, this is all wrong. Like, I can just tell this is all wrong, but I was too young to, to express it. By being exposed to all these like, engineering students, I started to realize, like, I'm really different. So that whole year was, I mean, it was dreadful. It was totally dreadful. Throughout that nine months, the image of San Diego became like this buoy that I would cling to as the alternative and where the spot that I really wanted to be because I was miserable. So in that year, you just started thinking about moving there? No, it was like a giant crisis. It was like a total coming-of-age crisis, which I think is really normal for young people because you don't, you know, you've been in your mother and father's household and you're not really making your own decisions. And I was making decisions like in my senior year of high school with no basis. You know, it's like that thing people say, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to major in? And you come up with an answer just because you know you have to give answers, but there's no basis for the answer, no experience. And so that first year of college for me was the collapse of all those fake answers and the challenge of trying to figure out like, wait, what are the actual answers? So in December, I decided to quit the scholarship, which really was like, you know, for my parents, they were so excited about that because they've got this, they had five kids and one of the kids is a free education. And when I got home for Christmas, I thought, okay, I'm not going to tell them I'm quitting the scholarship until after Christmas because I don't want to ruin it for them or for me. So Christmas morning, my dad, <laughs> my dad's so excited. He kept pointing at this one gift. He's like, Sai, open that one, open that one. And I opened it. And it was a coffee mug that was custom-made with gold-leaf paint that had my name and the symbol for the Army Corps of Engineers. And it was just so, it was such, it was so devastating. I can't even describe how devastated I was because he was so proud. So this mug was like, it was like a terrible symbol for me because, you know, it's got, <laughs> if I remember right, on one side it had the crest of the Army Corps of Engineers which is like a shield. And then my full name is painted below it in like old English. Gold leaf on the rim on top. And this thing must have weighed 12 pounds, dude. It was like so much ceramic. Then on the backside is this other symbol for the Army Corps of Engineers, which is two towers, like castle towers. So it's like, you know, from my dad's point of view, it's just this statement, like my kid, man, like my kid made it to this amazing thing, you know? And I remember opening the box and understanding what was printed on it and looking up and seeing my dad's face, he was beaming. Like he was, and my, my dad's a nice guy, but that's not a look I got that often. I mean, he was just beaming with pride. So I was like, oh, this is gonna be really, really, really bad. So anyway, I waited a few days after Christmas and I finally told my dad, that I, did, I, just, I, just, I just didn't want to do it. It turned out that with my dad, it wasn't actually that bad, but with my mom, it was really bad. She's an extremely practical person. She's, she's extremely strong. And man, I'm telling her, holy cow, the house almost like exploded, you know? So what it meant was that when I went back to school in January, 
not emotionally, but economically, I was effectively, if I wanted to do the things I wanted to do, I was on my own. And I knew that. So I got a job as soon as I got back to school. I got a job. I was a dishwasher. And I washed the morning dishes from the cafeteria. I would kind of meditate, you know, because it was like a three-hour shift I think I'd do. And I'd stand there at this trough and just do dishes. And I'd just think. And that's when a lot of things were slowly starting to gel. One of which was like, oh, I think I'm really interested in, like, film for some reason. When I was washing dishes in that first year of college, first of all, it was a comfort. It was like a way I could soothe myself from stress. But the thing I'd do is I'd start to work, you know, it'd be like 6 a.m. or something. I'd say, okay, I'm gonna, th- I'm gonna think of a movie, and I'm gonna think of a scene in the movie, and I'm just gonna play the scene back. And I'd do that, and I'd try to remember how it went, like, well, how did it actually go? Like, what was, this, what, was, what was the order of things, and what did it look like? And then I'd ask him, I remember asking myself this question all the time, like, how does that work? Why do I have a feeling from that? I don't understand why, but I like the feeling. I remember asking myself, like, is what I'm doing right now, are other people doing this? Or they're thinking about movies? And the answer is obvious. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think other people are doing this. It's like, maybe this is an interest of mine that's genuine. Um, that's the very first time it ever came to my conscious that this was like a, a serious interest for me. And then trying to formulate, like, what's my answer to where I'm going to be? Because I knew that next year I'm not going to be here. And for the longest time I was compromising. I thought, well, I'll go back to Alaska and I'll study in Fairbanks. But I didn't really want to go there. That was just a compromise because it's, you know, like close to my family. So when I went home in the summer, I was still thinking that. I remember being home for like four or five days. I was working for a moving company. I was walking down the sidewalk, and I was like, why am I going to compromise? Like, I want to move to San Diego. And so I went home and told my mom, and the house blew up again. <laughs> and I remember that at the end of that summer, I saved all my money. I, put, I, I, I stuck to it. Like, I'm going to San Diego. And I called my friend here, and I said, I'm, I'm moving, you know? He said, okay, I'll find an apartment, you know, get ready. And I remember getting on the plane, looking out the window and being like, yeah, man, like, this is kind of it. Like, I have to stick to my guns on this because if this doesn't work out, I'm not sure what I've got going, you know? So it felt actually extremely serious to me, the choice I was making. My close friend picked me up at the airport in a probably like an, I would guess, probably like a 1980 Toyota pickup. Started with a screwdriver. And he just bought it for 700 bucks. He's like, we got a truck. <laughs> and uh, we drove to Imperial Beach, and he had just rented an apartment a block up on Daisy Street. I think the rent was 425 which was, for me, super jarring because I never had a, a bill before. You know, I was like, wow, I have to pay 200 and some odd dollars per month. Like, I, this is crazy. Um, I signed up for school at Southwestern, and then I started trying to get a job, which was probably one of the harder things to do at that time because 93, San Diego was in recession. But I remember that the, the first night we were here, I had this, I had like some of the funny things that as a young person I thought. Like, I remember um, we went to the dollar store to buy things for the kitchen, like a spatula and stuff like that. I'd never been in a dollar store before. And I remember thinking, like, you can get anything here. 
for a dollar. This, this place is amazing, right? And in the dollar store, I remember we were standing, there's a little food section, and we bought like a five-pound bag of rice and like a five-pound bag of beans, each for like a dollar. And I remember having this feeling at that moment, like all the anxiety I was having about can I survive, will I make it, at that moment being like, I'm good. Because I can get a pound of rice for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, you know, as soon as I cooked it and started eating, I was like, oh no, this is not going to be the solution I thought it was. But that night we also went to, uh, we went to Wienerschnitzel and we unloaded all the paper towels out of the men's bathroom for paper towels. And that's how, <laughs> that was our strategy. <laughs> that was our basic strategy for survival was like, just max out every resource possible. We had lawn chairs in the living room and he had a little tiny TV. Uh, and that was pretty much it. And that's how it started. But yeah, it was super challenging. Um, but I was very, very determined that I put myself through college. That's how I was, I was rebelling against my parents. With his friend Hans at his side, Sai started building a life for himself, working and studying, and of course surfing, with lots of early mornings and late nights. He did it though. He made it through school on his own, graduating from San Diego State University, where he majored in film. From there, he bounced around quite a bit through Peace Corps, grad school, even shot a film in Africa. Despite opportunities taking him far and wide, he always seemed to come back to two things, his love of film and his desire to live in San Diego. How to do one, let alone both, was daunting. So it's, you know, it's after that first year in Peace Corps, I started to think, okay, my dream is film. I still don't know how to do it or how I'm gonna make it happen, but I know that's what I really, you know, at the end of my life, if I look back, that's the one thing, if I don't try, I'll be like, man, I should have tried. But, um, and, but the problem was still active, and the problem was I'm trying to be a filmmaker as hard as I can, but I still don't know how to put it together with San Diego and how to make a life in San Diego that's mine. And I did have the idea of teaching film, but that's not so simple. Like, you know, there's not, there's not like 50 film teaching jobs laying around. It finally all did come together for Cy when he joined the faculty of San Diego City College to teach film. Really, for the first time, he felt settled in the city he considers home while doing what he wanted to do. One constant throughout all his years here is his old high school friend, who picked him up way back when he first arrived. Without that friendship, it wouldn't have worked. Without a partner who's in a similar position, there's no way you could do that by yourself. He was kind of like, you know, I suppose he's what everybody's best friend is. They're a confidant, but they're also a person who buys into your dreams, who really believes in your dreams. And that was, he was at that time the only person. My dreams were pretty esoteric, I think. You know, and I couldn't really verbalize them yet. But he somehow helped me figure out my sort of truer self instead of just um, sort of parroting what, you know, adults were saying around me, you know. Um, and we're still best friends. He was here an hour ago. It also came together because I, I, found, I finally found a way in film work to, for me, to start to process my experience here. Because I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't see like a documentary here. I didn't see a fiction film here. So I started to make these little special effects videos that for me were like really like meditations on the city, you know, in my environment. Um, and that in a weird way, it was really important for me to kind of like get that connection to my work. So it's been great, man. Now I feel 
like I'm part of the community. I feel like I belong here. I have a place here, but it took a long time to kind of scrap together. Sai's struggle to make it in San Diego as a filmmaker definitely wasn't easy. He sees advantages, though, to being apart from the brighter spotlights of L.A. or New York. San Diego has some great artists, but I just don't feel that pressure here. I feel like here I can be me, period. I don't have to think about the history or legacy of other people. And I think that's, for me, that's, that's powerful. So, you know, we got some work to do, but that's one of the reasons I like being here now is because I feel like for those of us in the arts community, there's a lot of value to what we have to give. Where in other cities it's done, you know, it's developed. And this is still kind of a baby of a city, it's still figuring itself out. Thanks for listening. If you haven't had the chance, you can hear more and subscribe on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online, too, at kpbs.org slash myfirstday. I'm Andrew Bracken. My First Day was produced by me for AB Squared Creative Group, with music by Chris Curtis. Thanks also to Melissa Diaz. Support for this program comes from the KPBS Explore Local Content Fund, supporting new ideas and programs for San Diego. For KPBS, Melanie Drogseth is Programming Coordinator, Nate John is Innovation Specialist, Jill Linder is Programming Manager, and John Decker is Director of Programming. Thanks a lot. See you next time. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.